0: Good morning, crowd family. I'm glad you can join us uh, this morning. And um, I want to give a shout out to Deborah Guzman and Gabe out in Newman. Love you guys and God bless you. you have your Bibles with you, turn to Titus chapter 3. Uh, Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 11 is our text. Uh, today's text, uh, Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. We're now in part 8 of our series Doctrine and devotion. Now, before we dive into the text, as always, I want to do a quick review from last week's text, verses three through eight. And there in the text, Paul begins by giving a list of, of characteristics of the characteristics of what we used to be. Uh, And he's pointing out our rebellion prior to our relationship with Jesus. And so he's reminding the saints in Crete and also us, all of us, of our former uh, despicable, degraded, despairing, godless condition. And he emphasized the fact that every believer is nothing more than a depraved sinner who has experienced the transforming grace of God. And then Paul says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and in envy, being hated and hating one another. So after giving a list of what we used to be, he now turns our attention to what we are. And in verse 3, we were active in sin without God. That speaks of our godlessness. And in verses 4 through 7, God is active in salvation, changing what we could not change ourselves. And that speaks of God's graciousness. So God rescued us. Say that. God rescued us. And He's the one who who made the difference. He's the one who takes the initiative, the one who intervenes in our lives. And it's His kindness and, and love and mercy that formed the basis for the salvation that becomes ours. Let's look at verses 4 through 5 right now. It says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, But because of his mercy, say mercy, don't you love that? He saved us through the washing of rebirth. That's regeneration. Got it, regeneration, that's a one time event. And then he says, and renewal by the Holy Spirit, that's sanctification. That's a lifelong process, and this is the Holy Spirit's ministry of sanctifying us, and He renews the in, inward believer day by day. Uh, he's the, the master teacher, and when He does, He guides us into all truth. And in fact, uh, He is the one who seals us for our eternal destiny. Look at verse 6. Whom He, speaking of God, poured out on us generously or richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That says there is no lack of supply on Jesus' part for our spiritual needs. I love that. Now, I want to read verses 4 through 6 again uh, because I want to point something out here. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, say God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Say, Holy Spirit. Verse 6, whom He poured out on us generously or richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. All three persons of the Trinity are involved in this amazing, awesome, wonderful work of salvation. Someone say amen. Look at verse 7, so that having been justified by His grace, say justified. Justification refers to the act of God whereby He makes a sinner righteous just as if they've never sinned. Then he goes on to say we might become errors. Now if you're if you're saved then then you're in line for an incredible incredible inheritance. And he says having the hope of eternal life. Say hope of eternal life. So he saves us and keeps us saved. In other words, he he preserves us and we all have the hope of spending eternity in the presence Of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying. Trustworthy saying refers back to the long sentence that runs from verses 4 through 7. And then he says, And I want you to stress these things. The word stress there means to affirm constantly so that we will never stop speaking of salvation and celebrating the transformation that only Christ can bring into a life. And then it's, then, then uh, these things, that phrase, these things, refers to the same sentence, uh, these great doctrinal truths about our salvation. And you see, Paul wants Titus to continue speaking these truths with confidence so that believers will be careful to engage, get this now, in good deeds, good works. Look at the text. It says, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing or maintaining what is good. These things are excellent and profitable, say profitable, for everyone. So friends, Paul challenged Titus to continually affirm the truths he had received, being faithful to proclaim the Word of God. And in in turn, this would ensure that those who heard and obeyed the Word would live lives worthy of their calling. So remember this? What's their calling? What is it? It's salvation, right? It's salvation. Their life, their walk ought to measure up and be consistent with their calling. So the calling is salvation, and their life ought to measure up with that calling. If you got it, say amen. And Paul's point is that we are to live our lives in a way that, that reveals the transformation uh, that has taken place through salvation in Jesus Christ. It, it's Listen now, it's living according to the Word of God that results in good works and possesses a positive Christian witness. This would be profitable to the church and to society because Paul says these things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Now, I want to say this. And I said it last week. It isn't enough just to know what the Bible teaches. We must put it into practice in our everyday lives. Got it? Put what we know into practice. Got it? Now that this now brings us to today's text, and the title of my message is The Divisive Person. Say that the Divisive Person. Here in the text. Paul is giving a contrast. Say contrast, contrast. And and there are certain things that we should love and there are certain things that we should avoid. So let's go back and read verse 8 again, okay? This is a trustworthy saying. Again, refers back to the long sentence that runs from verses 4 through 7 where Paul talks about the grace of God, right? And, And what the grace of God has done. Then he says, And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing or maintaining what is good This is what he says. These things are excellent and profitable. There's that word again, profitable for everyone. Now, in contrast to that which is profitable, Paul now points out uh, that which is unprofitable. And so I have five points uh, that I want to share with you from the text. And if you're ready, say yes, say yes. Point number one is this. Point number one is what to avoid. Write that down. What to avoid. And then we're going to look at verse 9, what to avoid. And then we look at verse 9, and Paul writes, but the word but there, what it does, it introduces the reader to the contrast between what's important, what's profitable, the priority, and what must be avoided. He says, but avoid. Well, avoid, we know that means to turn oneself around or or going around something in order to avoid it, to, to keep oneself away. It's in in the imperative tense, which means that it's a command, not a suggestion. The New American Standard Bible uses the word shun, shun, which means to turn your back and walk away from. So I want you to follow me here, all right? But avoid, then Paul says, foolish controversies. Avoid foolish controversies. In, In the Greek, the word foolish is moros, moros, which uh, from which we get the word, the, our English word moronic, which we get our word moron, moron, excuse me, moron from. So we are to avoid or to shun moronic conversations, conversations about things that are of no value, foolish speculations or foolish questions that have to do with issues that have no clear biblical testimony. We are to avoid speculative subjects that stir up strife. Now in Paul's closing uh, words to Timothy in his first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 20 through 21 again that's 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 20 through 21 he says this Timothy guard what has been entrusted to your care guard it then he says this turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge which some have professed, and in and in so doing have wandered from the faith. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 and verse 23, he says, warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Verse 23 says this: don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. Now I want to say this. Paul is not implying that we shouldn't discuss or defend the truth. Rather, he's warning against foolish controversies, foolish controversies. And then he goes on to say this, avoid uh, foolish controversies and genealogies, genealogies in in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 4. 1 Timothy 1 Verse 4, Paul refers to these genealogies as endless. They go on and on and on. And you see, some use their genealogy, or in other words, their their Jewish roots, as a claim to superiority over those who didn't have similar family trees. Like they had uh, more favor with God, and they thought they they had the inside track uh, because of their association. Well, Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Philippians 3, 5 and 6, gives us the greatest illustration out of it. And he says this, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So what Paul does, Paul puts all of these advantages up here, right? Right? All these genealogical table, uh, all this genealogical table, and then he just, what he does, he just throws it all away. Verses 8 and 10 of Philippians 3, this is what Paul says. What is more, I consider everything, everything he just talked about, a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Did you get that? From the law. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So all that stuff, what I knew about the law and, you know, um, you know, uh, all all that I was—I uh, was a Hebrew of Hebrews and uh, the tribe of Benjamin—all that stuff, a Pharisee—all that stuff means nothing. Nothing, friends, nothing, in comparing to know Jesus Christ. So he says, he's talking about genealogies. Then he says, in in arguments, and in arguments, uh, there are some people who just love to argue the issue, uh, such as you know—is it. Uh, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, such as the gifts of the Spirit within the church or such as baptism or or baptismal regeneration and other non-essentials. And unfortunately, churches split over people who love to argue the issue. And most churches split or divide over the smallest issues over non-essentials. Now let me give you some guidelines in, in conversations with those who are argumentative, okay? Here we go. It's always okay, always okay, to explain the truth of God's Word to those who are interested. I'm going to say it again. It's always it's always okay to explain the truth of God's Word to those who are interested. It's okay, it's okay to explain God's Word to someone with a strong opposing opinion once or twice. I'm going to say it again. It's okay to explain God's Word to someone with a strong opposing opinion once or twice. It's wrong, listen now, it's wrong to keep arguing with someone who clearly opposes God's word. I'm gonna say it again. It's wrong to keep arguing with someone who clearly opposes God's word. Then he says, and quarrels about the law, and quarrels about the law. Avoid those things. In context, this is referring to what? The Mosaic Law. It's specifically relating to the the senseless interpretations regarding the law in order to use such interpretations as means as a means to regulate people's lives. Uh, it's it's the height. You know what it is? It's the height of legalism. It's the height of legalism, and is still carried on today by those who promote certain hairstyles as necessary for the Christian life, or certain attire, or particular uh, eating habits, or observing. the the Jewish Sabbath day, Saturday, the Shabbat. And by the way, let me say this. As a Christian under the new covenant, I'm not justified by what day I worship. I'm justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. They also said that the grace of God is not enough, but the law, the law has to be mixed into that. And you see, friends, they, the, the thrust of their teaching was that the work of Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ alone wasn't enough. And they said you needed something more, that, the, that grace was not enough in order to be right with God. And they say it's good to believe in Jesus Christ, but there's, there are things you need to add to what He has done. You need to add rules and, and regulations and certain rituals and initiatory rites or, or follow certain dietary laws that bring you closer to God. They even said that you need to be circumcised to be saved. And they were telling the believers in Crete, you need more than what Paul or Titus is telling you. What Paul says to all of that is, uh avoid them, avoid them, shun them, keep yourselves away from them. Now there are certain religious religious groups, excuse me, or denominations who believe that you're not saved by grace alone. That it's grace plus water baptism or grace plus a certain spiritual gift or or, or grace plus uh, a certain spiritual uh experience. Now 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 if you're saved say amen. Come on, if you're saved say amen. Anyone who would say that Jesus Christ living in you and the power of the Holy Spirit working through you is not enough You need to avoid. You need to avoid. Don't give them your ear. Don't go to their churches. Don't read their books. Uh, Don't watch their TV programs. Don't listen to their YouTube channels or radio programs. You need to avoid them. Got it? So there's a lesson, and, and here's a lesson. We always have a lesson, right? Jesus, here's a lesson. Jesus is enough. Say that. Jesus is enough. His redeeming work on the cross is enough. It's not Jesus plus this or Jesus plus that. It's not Jesus plus works or Jesus plus the law. No, it's Jesus, period. Jesus, period. The law, listen now, the law reveals my sin, but the law cannot take away my sin. Only Jesus' redemptive work on the cross can. And you see, God gave the law for a very express purpose. It wasn't for us to live by. God gave the law to show us our need of a righteousness which is not our own. So I want you to follow me here. The law was given for the express purpose to show us in our self-righteousness and all of our performance that we fall short of God's righteous standard. We fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, right? Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, I want to point out that the text, today's text, the text is not a reference to the legitimate study of the law of the prophets and the Old Testament scriptures, which are rich, very rich in content uh, for all Christians. We should study the law and see what it means. Uh, we should study the prophets, right, in the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, like I said, they're, they're rich in content. We should know the Old Testament. This, this also, might I say, is not, is not a reference to legitimate... The text is also not a reference to legitimate, healthy theological discussions or debates. We shouldn't avoid healthy theological discussions or debates. In fact, both Jesus and Paul often engage their their opponents, and sometimes in in calm settings, others in heated settings. And, And I want you to think about, friends, how Jesus didn't hesitate to confront the scribes and the Pharisees in serious discussions. Paul... Also engaged Roman officials, Jewish leaders, and also Greek philosophers. Now, always, I want you to get this now, always at issue in these discussions was revealed truth, not personal opinions, never opinions. Are you guys with me? Jesus, Jesus engaged in conversations regarding his nature as God he uh, the necessity of a redeemer the the clarification of the nature of of an an office of the Messiah and the necessity of the new birth the the certainty of of resurrection and judgment, the reality of man's sinfulness and the purpose and certainty of his redemptive work, Paul engaged in conversations regarding the nature of God, the reality that God alone is God, the fact that me, that that men's imaginations fall short of grasping the true God, that God will fulfill His promises that salvation is of grace, that God accomplished His saving work through Jesus Christ, and that the resurrection is certain. Always at the issue in these discussions was revealed truth, not personal opinions. And friends, we have plenty of vital issues revealed truth to discuss and at times to debate. Me and my son, Julian, often have healthy theological discussions. We, we talk about certain things, you know, found in the Bible, and we talk about those things, and, and, and we just get really intense at times, but we, we just have these wonderful, healthy theological discussions, and we are to, listen, not avoid having those theological discussions. But what Paul says is this, but we are to what? Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. If you got it, say got it. So number one is what to avoid. Point number two is why to avoid it. Why to avoid it. Okay, point number two is why to avoid it. Write that down. And we're going look to at, look at the very end of verse 9. Look at the end of verse 9. Paul says, because these are unprofitable and useless. This stands in marked contrast to the things that are profitable that we saw in verse 8. Remember? In verse 8. In other words, Paul's saying that these kinds of discussions here in verse nine are a total waste of time, and God doesn't want his people having them because they cause disputes rather than edification. they tear down rather than build up. in fact, they they can even keep God's work from advancing. And Paul is telling Titus much of what, He said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 3 through 7, 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 7, where Paul says, As I urge you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. This is what he says: such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work which is by faith. Do you get that? Then he goes on to say, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently confidently affirm. Now, if you're saved, say amen. We need to guard our hearts striving to prioritize the gospel while refusing to be sidetracked with senseless unprofitable debates and discord okay debates and discord because some people have no desire to know the truth they have no desire for the truth and they thrive on on debate they they thrive on discord they they'll do anything they can to stir trouble and create confusion and division within the church so what to avoid why to avoid it because what they are unprofitable and useless. And point number three is this who to warn? Who to warn? Write that down. Who to warn? Point number three. And look at what Paul says in verse 10. He says, Warn a divisive person. I want to stop there. Warn a divisive person. The word divisive is the Greek word herartikas. Herartikas. The word means heretic. In other words, a divisive person. A heretic is a a factious person, a person who who is quarrelsome and stirs up factions uh, through promotion of erroneous opinions. And by the way, this is the only place the word appears in the New Testament. So listen, the divisive person is determined to go their own way and to take others with them to form, listen now, factions, cliques, and conspiracies. In fact, they're almost always zealous but lacking in knowledge. Uh, Their teaching is out of balance and neglect important related passages. Uh, They tend to make sweeping conclusions based on isolated passages. Uh, They're stuck on bizarre interpretations. They're prideful. Uh, They they draw attention to themselves or to exhibit what they know to others. They undermine the authority of another who is teaching. They interfere uh, with the edification of the sheep and have no respect for those God has placed in authority. They desire to to be teachers, uh, so to see themselves in competition with existing teachers. Now listen, it's not heresy to be wrong about doctrine or to be in error. Otherwise, friends, we, we would all be heretics at one time or another, right? The heretic in this verse is an activist who doesn't respond to careful and loving teaching, speaking, exhorting, and rebuking. He's rebellious. Say that. He's rebellious and is trying to raise a following. He's divisive, seeking to divide the church. And this is exactly what Satan wants to do. In fact, C.H. Spurgeon said this, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He attaches far more importance to godly intercourse than we do. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. So what to avoid, why to avoid it, who to warn, and point number four is when to reject the person. When to reject the person. So, what do we do with a divisive person, friends? What do we do? I mean, do we just kind of just say, okay, you're done, out of here? No. We are to exercise church discipline when necessary. There, there's a process in this. So follow me. Look at the text. Let's look at verse 10 again. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. So Titus is commanded, right, to give the divisive person, a first and second warning or admonition. In fact, friends, in the Greek, by the way, in the Greek, the word admonition is nuthesia. Nuthesia, it means to confront. And so you are to confront that person. Now, that's not an easy thing to do, but it's necessary. So you are to first warn the person of their error, right? Now, the warning that you're giving the person the first time, the first warning, is not a threat but an admonition uh, to repent because of the teaching of Scripture that contradicts him. And that's what's what's being laid on the mind. It's, it's a call to stop his sinful ways immediately to repent, to seek God for mercy. Now, if he doesn't respond when you warn him a second time, uh, this second warning demonstrates Okay, if he doesn't respond, then you warn him a second time. Excuse me, then you warn him a second time. And this second warning or admonition demonstrates a loving spirit and a desire to see him restored to the fellowship in the church. Now, if he fails to respond to these two warnings, then you are to recognize the factious, divisive person's character and the danger of associating with him. He is characterized, excuse me, by an unteachable spirit. So look at what Paul says, verse ten again. Look at what Paul says. He says, after that, after what, after not responding to the two admonitions or two warnings, Paul says this. After that, have nothing to do with him. Yeah, that's the word of God. Have nothing to do with him. The divisive person is to be rejected. That is, friends, Titus is to refuse him, to have nothing to do with him. And Paul says, reject, to reject that person, to reject him. And you see here in the text, Paul is summarizing church discipline following the model of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Again, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, where Jesus address uh, church discipline. And he says this. If your brother sins against you, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. So that's the first time that you confront them, right? Confront him. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So that's the second time you confront him. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. In other words, an outcast. An outcast. You see, what Paul's teaching in the text regarding a factious, divisive person continues this same practice established by Jesus. And Paul was very, very vocal about this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 Verses 14 through 15, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Paul writes, For if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him. That might sound harsh, but this is the word of God. In order that you may feel ashamed, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Romans chapter 16, verse 17. Romans 16, verse 17, Paul writes, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. This is what he says. Keep away from them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I don't have time to really expound on that, but there, the church of Corinth, they were not exercising church discipline. And so if Paul, Paul confronts him and says, hey, there's a guy in your church who is deliberately sinning, and you know it, and you're not doing nothing about it. And Paul says, you need to confront him and get him out of the fellowship. Paul was very, very vocal about this. Now, I want to say this. Paul spoke a lot about the love of the fellowship, the unity of the body of Christ, but that truth and unity could never be separate. I'm going to say that again, that truth and unity could never be separate. Paul made it very, very clear that, listen now, that true unity was always based on truth, on truth, the Word of God, truth. Paul was all about protecting the body of Christ, protecting the church, okay? Why? Because, listen, a divisive person threatens the unity of the church, when Paul's heart was always to protect the body of Christ. It's all about the truth of God's word. Now listen, when divisive people are found, either by choosing wrong doctrine or inappropriate behavior, they must be dealt with according to Scripture. Deal with them, listen now, gently, firmly, and swiftly. So I want you to write this down, 2 Timothy 2, verses 23 through 26. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 through 26. And Paul writes, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Then this is what he says. Opponents must be gently, there's that word gently, instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of truth. Got it? So you gently instruct them, bring them back, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So the desire is for the disruptor, the divisive person, to come to understand their error and repent. Now, if they will not heed to wise counsel, if they will not heed to correction, the church then is to what? Reject them to put them out. That's what the text says. So what to avoid, why to avoid it, who to warn, and then um, when to reject the person. And then point number five is we need to reject why. Excuse me, why, why we need to reject the person. Write that down. Why we need to reject the person. Look at verse 11. Paul writes, You may be sure that such a man, this is what he says, is warped and sinful, he is self condemned. We'll read that again. You may be sure that such a man, such a man that he describes, is warped and sinful, he is self condemned. You see, the divisive person's refusal to listen has shown exactly what kind of person he is. And his refusal to heed to, to strong teaching and correction shows that his error is of the heart as well as, as of the mind. So as to his character, this kind of person is warped, right? The, the word is also used there is also the word perverted. So this kind of person is warped, perverted. Look at the text. Such a man is what? Warped. That's an odd Greek word that means to be completely turned, completely turned inside out. This person is completely twisted in their thinking. They're in a state of being completely disoriented from the truth. And they put their own slant on the truth. They are just the opposite of what God would have them be, do, and say. As to his character, this kind of person is sinning, look at the text, and sinful. So they believe and promote false doctrine. And they think that they're continually, continually, excuse me, right with their free thinking. Hey, listen, hey, they're not just confused, they're continually sinning. And they're sinning by causing or seeking to cause division in the church. They don't want to be taught the truth. So as to his character, this kind of person is self-condemned. Look at the text. He is self-condemned. This kind of person condemns himself by his constant rejection of the truth of God's Word. And he may not be conscious of his condemnation, but by his actions, he passes judgment on himself. Listen, his self-chosen views and refusal to be corrected are his own doing. And by his persistence in sin, what he does is he condemns himself. So this means that we avoid the divisive person We excuse ourselves from any ongoing involvement with that person. And we do this for two reasons, okay, for two reasons. First, this person needs to understand that as Christians, we do not and will not stand in agreement with him. And friends, this is a testimony on our part to the truth of God's word. The second reason is this. We need to realize our own propensity to be affected by the factious divisive person's poison. So we don't give him ground to sow his seed of discord. Got it? Now, I want to say this, and I want you to hear my heart. If you think that we as church leaders are being judgmental, harsh, or unloving if we ever need to deal with someone in this manner, you're probably being more influenced by our tolerant culture, our tolerant culture, than by the truth of God's Word. What I taught today, what we study today, is the truth of God's Word. Can I get an amen? So as we wrap this up, I want to give you five takeaways from what we study today. Five takeaways. First takeaway is this. The Word of God is trustworthy. Say that. The Word of God is trustworthy, therefore we can have confidence in the Word of God. It's trustworthy. So the Word of God is trustworthy. The second takeaway is this. Avoid arguments, controversies, and contentions because they are unprofitable and worthless. Got it? Avoid arguments, controversies, and contentions because they are unprofitable and worthless. The third takeaway is this. When we are standing on the truth of God's Word, we can reject the divisive person. I'm going to say it again. When we, st- when, we, when we are standing on the truth of God's Word, we can reject the divisive person. The fourth takeaway is this. The law's purpose was to reveal our sin in our need of a Savior and ceased in its function when it drove us in brokenness and repentance to the cross of Calvary. God, I'm going to say it again. The law's purpose was to reveal our sin and our need for a Savior and cease in its function when it drove us in brokenness and repentance to the cross of Calvary, which brings us to the fifth takeaway is this. Jesus is enough. His grace is enough. Jesus is enough. Can I get an amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in light of what we've learned today, today, might we continue to stand on and live by the very truth of your word? That we would not get sidetracked with senseless, unprofitable debates and discussions. Instead, Lord, focus on that which is profitable. And to you be the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. You say amen? Hey, listen. Before I close here, I just want to give you an opportunity, if you have not done so, to receive Jesus Christ, to come into your heart, to be your personal Lord and Savior. And regardless of, you know, who you are or what your sin is, God offers you His grace in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so all you have to do is receive Him. That's all you have to do. Call upon Him today to save you, and He will save you. Acts chapter two, verse 21 says this, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will, not might, but will be saved. Romans 9, we know this, right? Romans 9. if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will, not might, you will be saved. So if that's you, if you want to trust Christ to come into your life, to follow him today, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes and repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner And I need you to come into my life to save me, to cleanse me, and to change me. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord and believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead. I receive you this day. I am saved, sealed, sanctified, satisfied, justified, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am born again. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me today. And I will serve you and love you from this day forth until you call me home. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Hey, if you said that prayer, we'd love to hear from you. And so you can uh, email us at, contact at cryout.org, and that's contact at cryout.org. So I hope you enjoyed the message. Love you all. I miss you. And have a wonderful day, and I'll see you next week.